0: Hey, it's Christopher Ewing. Join me and other stroke survivors from across the country and around the world during the second annual Life After Stroke support group cruise, October 28th to November 1st, 2024, aboard Royal Caribbean's beautiful Navigator of the Seas cruise ship. The ship leaves round trip from Los Angeles, California, making port stops to Catalina Island and Ensenada, Mexico. Stroke survivors, as well as their caregivers, family, and friends, are invited to join us as we just take some time to put aside the thoughts of stroke and just enjoy life again. So join us October 28th to November 1st aboard World Caribbean's beautiful Navigator of the Seas, leaving round trip from Los Angeles and making port stops in Catalina and Ensenada, Mexico. For more information, just go to www.thestrokechannel.tv. That's thestrokechannel.tv. And remember, there's still a beautiful life after stroke. The following is a recorded program of an actual stroke support group. The comments expressed are the personal opinions of the participants and not necessarily the opinions of the producers, sponsors, or the broadcasters of this show. This program is not to be used as a way to diagnose or treat any medical condition that you may have. Please consult your doctor or healthcare professional before making any changes to your current medical routine. Stroke. Stroke. Stroke.
1: Stroke. It comes out of the blue, sometimes without warning.
2: But those who survive it should never lose hope. A stroke can be life-changing. But it is also a new beginning.
1: Because for all survivors, there is still a beautiful life after
0: stroke. Hey everybody, welcome to Life After Stroke. I'm Christopher Ewing. Today we're broadcasting from home base, which is Providence St. Joseph's Medical Center in Burbank, California. And with us today is Dr. Annette Swain, who is a clinical neuropsychologist here in Burbank and also in Encino, right? Correct. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, Why don't you introduce yourself to everybody Mm -hmm. who's listening and stuff like that? We'll kind of go from there.
1: So good morning everyone. Um, Again, my name is Dr. Annette Swain. I'm a um, as Christopher was saying, a clinical neuropsychologist, and so basically what my area of specialty is in is people's thinking abilities, your cognitive abilities. Um, so we're talking things like language and attention, memory, more complex mental abilities like reasoning, problem-solving, judgment, in addition to mood and personality. Um, and so where I'm called in, or my primarily role, primary role, is that of evaluations and assessment. Um, When it comes to working with people with stroke, I primarily come in um, a month, two months after stroke to see where are residual deficits, where are limitations, restrictions, what kind of needs remain, where does the treatment team go from here in terms of how to best maximize your quality of life and your independence.
0: Hmm. And when they call you in, as you say, (coughs) who makes that call and at what point are you called in?
1: Um, I primarily work with neurologists, but also geriatricians and family medicine. And it's typically after people have been stabilized, though, you know, I have several peers who work in acute care settings, such as hospitals as this. Um, And then also comprehensive rehabilitation centers typically have neuropsychologists on staff so that they can consult in terms of, again, areas of need and deficits and how does this impact the treatment? How does uh, the team compensate or work around it so that they can best work with the patient to meet their needs and to maximize their recovery?
0: Mm -hmm. So you might be called in at a time where the, uh, the patient is still in the hospital.
1: Oh, sure. Yes. And, um, that's quite common among different uh, centers across the United States where mm-hmm. neuropsychologists play a vital role in terms of the rehab team, again, with regard to where are the deficits, how is this impacting their ability to understand mm-hmm. the um, what's going on with them and uh, to be able to communicate, and again, how to be able to intervene, what kind of... Uh, Treatments are most indicated in terms of cognition, is, and we can't dismiss the emotional component either.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow, very heavy. Well, we've got a lot in store for the show today with Dr. Swain. Um, we're going to discuss things like depression uh, in stroke survivors and um, really all kinds of things that have to do with the cognitive deficits that happen following a stroke. And uh, so, Dr. Swain will go over all of that. Uh, throughout the show here. So everyone sit tight and we'll be right back.
2: I used to think going to the dentist was going to hurt, but now I go to Dr. Cades. Dr. Cades not just a dentist. He's a pediatric dentist. That means he specializes in us kids. It's fun. Dr. cade has been a dentist for a really long time. That means he's really good. And his office is awesome. He even has a really cool game room. And sitting there while the dentist works on your teeth might seem boring. But not at Dr. Cade's, you get to wear these really cool glasses and watch cartoons while he works on your teeth. Plus, when you're done, you even get to go to Dr. Cade's Toy Stop and pick out a brand new toy. I like that. Hi, I'm Dr. Kate Ensiger, and your child's dental care is our passion. When your child has a dental need, give us a call at 402-330-1131. Or visit us online at drkade.com.
0: Hey everybody, welcome back to Life After Stroke. I'm Christopher Ewan. Today our guest is Dr. Annette Swain. She's a clinical neuropsychologist here in Burbank, California, as well as an office in Encino. A really good restaurant over in Encino. I won't mention which one it is, but it's really good. So (laughs) That's my my connection to Encino. (laughs) Uh, Dr. Swain, a question for you. What type... Of cognitive deficits do you see the most um, from stroke survivors?
1: Well, that's a more complicated question than it might seem on the surface because mm. it's, uh, deficits after stroke are highly associated with the location of where the stroke occurred. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, many strokes occur in well, near the middle cerebral artery arteries. But depending on whether or not your stroke happens on the left side or on the right, whether or not they're massive or small, will really have a direct impact on what symptoms. And in fact, there are a lot of us who have what are known as silent strokes where they're asymptomatic and we don't realize we've even had them until we end up in MRIs and they show up Mm -hmm. there. So um, when people have smaller strokes that accumulate it's common for them to have difficulties in terms of how quickly they think on their feet because of the damage that strokes do to our brain mm-hmm. it impacts the speed at which information can be transmitted so it's almost like our brains working in third gear when it was supposed to be in fourth oh,
0: okay hmm. so
1: It just takes us a little bit longer, Mm -hmm. and for us, for some people, a lot longer. Another area that gets impacted is our ability to pay attention and to focus, and again, because of that same issue with regard to injury to certain Mm -hmm. neuronal pathways.
0: Now, that's what I was going to ask you. What area of the brain is it that's kind of responsible for some of this cognitive deficit, or is it various parts of the brain, and what are those various parts, then, I guess?
1: You know, we've become, we've gone a long way in terms of understanding what areas of the brain are responsible for what types of cognitive activities. Um, you know, as an overgeneralization, language tends to be located in our left hemisphere and expressive mm. language is over in the the left frontal area. Mm-hmm. Um and more receptive language is back over in the left parietal hmm. <clears throat> um you know your right hemisphere is more responsible for nonverbal abilities it's kind of our creative side mm-hmm. um And so, again, depending on the location of the stroke, you're going to have different deficits. So someone who's had like a left middle cerebral artery stroke may have problems in terms of being able to come up with the words that they want to say to be able to put sentences together and Mm -hmm. have it be grammatical and fluent and make sense. People who might have a right frontal stroke would have difficulties in terms of um, problem solving and working memory and being able to plan depending on the size of the, the stroke and mm-hmm. how much deficit or damage has been done, you will see greater amounts of residual impairment.
0: Mm-hmm. So, Now, how did they, and I could only imagine what this might have looked like on a screen or on a readout or something, but how did they figure out where these various places are in the brain that are responsible for these various things? Like, how did they decide, like, okay, well, this part of being verbal and thinking is centered right here in the brain and then this is over here way you know how did they figure that out
1: you know ironically enough it was by research with stroke patients Hmm. there's been a you know just a preponderance of research that's been done over the last 50 years Mm -hmm. and stroke patients are unique in the sense of because they're able to localize where the stroke occurred
3: Mm -hmm.
0: you know okay sure
1: then they correlated in terms of where the deficits mm-hmm. are.
0: What did you lose as a result of the stroke being right there? Right, mm-hmm.
1: exactly. Now, again, depending on the, the size of the stroke, then you can see more wide-ranging deficits, and that can come from edema or inflammation, metabolic changes. But nevertheless, stroke patients present as you know a uniquely valuable research tool for, unfortunately for you guys, but fortunate for the researchers, we can find out or we have found out a considerable amount in terms of how our brain works and how it can compensate, how it can regenerate um, to recover after a stroke. Hmm. So you will actually see with stroke survivors that your brain will develop new pathways around the damaged areas in order to be able to redevelop those skills that were damaged.
0: One thing I was going to ask you is, do all stroke survivors basically suffer some type of cognitive deficit as a result of having a stroke?
1: No. No. Um, And again, it really depends on the severity of the stroke and, quite importantly, how quick intervention is implemented. Mm -hmm. Um, It is imperative. You know, one thing, like TIAs, which are are known as sort of mini strokes, where the symptoms resolve within about 24 hours, those are really early warning signs that something is wrong and you had better get yourself to your doctor and Mm -hmm. maybe your blood pressure is out of whack or maybe you're eating too much fatty food or maybe you haven't exercised, whatever it is, but those are warning signs. And then for for some of us, you know, we really have to look at stroke as sort of like a brain attack, similar to the term of like a heart attack, meaning, you, you know, just because you're not feeling kind of right, but eh, it's not that serious, I'll just let it go. No, you can't ignore it because you guys yourselves know that, you know, the deficits or the impairments by not doing anything, can be Mm -hmm. catastrophic
0: Catastrophic.
1: so Mm -hmm. you know the sooner that that doctors can intervene in terms of either giving the aspirin or giving other kind of medications to kind of you know get the clots busted out Mm -hmm. or do whatever they need to do the less likely you're going to have residual impairments Mm -hmm. and again for smaller strokes they again we call them silent strokes you may not be aware that you've ever had them, and it's only after they've been accumulating over and over that you start to see the buildup mm-hmm. of, of deficits. I see. And not only that, it's actually a major risk factor for Alzheimer's disease.
0: Mm-hmm. So we
1: can't forget that one either. Strokes are? Strokes and vascular disease, I yes. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, now earlier you had mentioned that the amount of time – like over time things rewire and things like that we've had several doctors on the show that have talked about that when it comes to motor function in terms of arms and legs and things like that and that that period of progress and recovery can go on for years, whereas early on, you know, we're told three months is the big neuroplasticity thing, and then six months is a little plateau, and then after a year, that's your new normal. That has pretty much been debunked by almost everybody who's ever been in this support group, in any support group I've heard, even the doctors, in that you know, certainly the stroke survivors can tell you that. Hey, after a year, and and I know Dave is a great example. He said at at the one year point, he wasn't nearly as as recovered as he is now. Same thing with John. John's over here, nodding his head too, saying the same thing. So we've discussed that, have shot that down several times on this show when it comes to arms and legs, in terms of cognition. Does the same kind of time frame apply? Can you? regain and recover cognitively over a period of number of years as well?
1: Yes. Now, you know, one reason that it first came up about, you know, after one year, you've plateaued and that's it. You know, we have to keep in mind that the length of many research studies (laughs) don't go beyond six months or Mm -hmm. one year. So that was one limitation. We've gotten beyond that. Um, You know, the greatest recovery happens to be in that first month, first three months. But it doesn't mean that you can't regenerate. The big issue then is how much work you're going to put into it, how much effort you're going to, that it's less spontaneous. So the more sort of cognitive exercises that you can do, and that's one thing that's really important, is maintaining as much cognitive uh, activity, as well as social activity and um, physical activity will Mm -hmm. help in terms of your brain improving. And that's true not only for stroke survivors, but for everybody.
2: Mm -hmm, So
1: mm -hmm. yes, uh, you know, I've seen people three, four years, five years after traumatic brain injuries, after Mm -hmm. strokes and with, you know, regular aggressive intervention treatment that they're dedicated. So, you know, again, we're, we're still learning. What is it that we need to do to get those brain cells to kind of, you Come know, reorganize, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, and compensate for the ones that went offline.
0: Sure. Hmm. But
1: I don't believe that there's never hope.
0: Right, right.
1: You continue to see improvements. Hmm.
0: And I, I want to ask you this question. Why <coughs> is it that a lot of improvement happens within that first month to three months? Why is that?
1: Well, well you know, we have to keep in mind that, you know, when it comes to strokes, you, you not only have either the embolism that, you know clogs up the system so to speak or the hemorrhage or whatever it caused but you then have a cascade of changes in your brain there can be inflammation there can be metabolic changes and your brain takes a while to kind of get back to homeostasis so those things take time to kind of get back to normal and then you got a question then going on yes
2: i know that uh the word but i don't know what it means metabolic
1: Oh, it changes in your your in the the metabolism in terms of the chemical processes that is going on in your brain. There's, you know, certain levels of different chemicals and when you have an injury, be it a stroke or a brain injury, they get all kind of out of whack there for a while and it takes a while to get back to normal. So, as those things subside as your brain kind of gets back to homeostasis, that's one way that's one major reason why the, the improvement is so dramatic in that first four, six, nine weeks, hmm. okay? <clears throat> but also, again, your brain is quickly learning how to work around the areas of deficit.
0: Hmm. Interesting, very interesting. Um, what are some of the major cognitive difficulties that you find in a person who more specifically has a stroke?
1: You know, part of that is the function who ends up in my office. Mm -hmm. Now, individuals who've had left hemispheric strokes who have language-based deficits tend to receive more intervention because it's obviously adversely impacting their ability to communicate with their physicians or with their home. There's an obvious impact. Individuals who might have right hemispheric strokes and who are not necessarily struggling as much in terms of communication, it may actually escape a bit. So I tend to see more individuals who've had frontal strokes and for people who've had left hemispheric strokes. You've got some people who have strokes in the back of their head and their occipital lobe, and it impacts how they can see. So, But they don't necessarily end up as much in my office but simply because of why the doctors are referring what do they need.
0: Hmm. What type of experience does the brain have as this whole thing is is happening? You know, so the stroke happens. You know, body parts start going offline and things like that. What really is happening within the brain that causes some of these cognitive difficulties? Are just cells just dying left and right, or um, even if and and do some of these these cognitive difficulties happen even though the center of the stroke may not be right there? Are there some other kind of collateral damage that happens within the brain um, that may not have been at the actual site <coughs> of the actual stroke itself?
1: Certainly, understanding what happens with a stroke is that you know your your blood system is um, providing or. Uh, transferring oxygen and nutrients to various areas in your body and obviously your brain. And your brain is very, very dependent upon oxygen. And it can only, the, the tissue, the neurons can only survive for a very brief period of time when it's deprived of that. And what you see with strokes and the injury, most of it comes from, or the majority of it comes from the oxygen deprivation as opposed to nutrient deprivation. And so you'll see this also with hypoxia. So <clears throat> when you have an embolism, um, which is basically like a piece of f- fatty deposit, falls off the side of the one of the arteries and then clogs up where the arteries get comes, get a little smaller and they start branching out, it clogs it up and the blood can, can past it. So the area of your brain beyond that <clears throat> is deprived of the the oxygen deprived of the nutrients. And again, it doesn't take very long before then you've got neuronal damage, you've got cell death. Mm-hmm. And then that's going to cascade to areas around it. And again, the the size of the stroke, where it ends up, how big was the deprivation, that will then um, help dictate or help predict where mm-hmm. are the areas of deficit, how bad is it going to be.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: but it also then indicates again what we were talking about earlier you, the quicker you can get intervention the quicker that they can free up that blockage or you know, stop the bleeding if it was a hemorrhagic stroke, mm-hmm. the better they're going to mitigate or minimize the level of, of neuronal death, the amount of damage that your brain sustains
0: hmm. Man, this is so heavy um, <coughs> We're going to take a break. When we come back I want to find out some of the speech difficulties that people may have let's say where are the centers in the brain that are kind of responsible for some of those difficulties and what can you do to try to get some of that to come back online if you will and then also I want to ask you the question I know that we've had some stroke survivors who have talked about experiencing a greater incidence of depression and also mood changes so I want to talk about that. And I know also after the break, I want to talk about you, Dr. Parker, because, you know, a couple of weeks ago, you know, for everybody that listens to our show, Candy came in with the dog. And it was really remarkable in that Dr. Parker, he had said that he had had four dogs and, and two cats. No, three cats, three cats. <laughs> but he said that now after the stroke he had become afraid of dogs just after the stroke it had done something in his brain that had caused him to become afraid of dogs and he like freaked out when this lady came with this little little tiny little dog and he got over it certainly just like within our episode but you know here's a brilliant man a doctor an author and everything else and he had said you know just something happened in my brain that just after the stroke just flipped a switch and i'm afraid of dogs all of a sudden <laughs> so maybe you can talk a little bit about that too so hang tight everybody we'll be right back Get the new CD, Dust Bowl American Stories, by award-winning artist Grant Malloy smith featuring the hit song, Old Black Roller.
2: Old Black Roller, why'd you come today? Half of Oklahoma is blowing dead away.
0: Lily of the Valley.
2: I wonder if she thinks about me today.
0: I up the valley was her name. come from America? I, I come from America, America, America,
2: I come from America, America's from me.
0: Get the new CD, the Dust Bowl American Stories, by award-winning team. artist Grant Malloy-Smith. Available now on iTunes, CD Baby, and at grantmalloysmith.com. Hey everybody, welcome back to Life After Stroke. I'm Christopher Ewing. Today our guest is Dr. Annette Swain. She's a clinical neuropsychologist here in the Burbank and Encino area here in California. And doctor, here's a question for you. So for stroke survivors who have, let's say, problem reading, but yet they can still speak and things like that, it's just things, is it things on the page that just look garbled or don't make sense what is it that is the block there
1: well that's a more complicated question on on the surface than what you might have -hmm. anticipated for some people may not be able to read because they've had an occipital stroke so that their brain is not able to process visual information as well Mm -hmm. as they could Mm -hmm. there might even be a field deficit where they might not actually be able to see things that are right in front of them because of a field cut, there, there's a certain area of their brain mm-hmm. have been damaged. Other people who have what's known as, you know, left posterior parietal, I mean posterior temporal and parietal area strokes, they can have what's known as a receptive language aphasia. Sometimes it's called a Wernicke's aphasia. And so that area is more for receptive language. The further, you know, nor, so to speak, or interior you get in your brain, the more you're going to get to production. Mm -hmm. So you have in that area, that in the back there, more, again, not only just reading, but also understanding. So these people, actually, they're prone to having problems in terms of expressing. They may not be aware of it, but they'll have, they'll do things like, they'll have paraphasic errors. So they'll say words, and they think they're saying something, but it's not the right words. And they may look like they understand you, but they're not understanding you. And this Mm -hmm. is really important on uh, the hospital floor if they're having this kind of aphasia or this kind of language problem because they may look at you and it may seem like they're understanding you, but they're not. And Mm -hmm. so it can run the risk of are they... Giving consent for something inadvertently oh,
0: mm-hmm. when
1: they really don't, don't know what f- sure. exactly. Mm-hmm. So that's where the speech and language pathologists on the hospital floors are so vital mm-hmm. to be able to quickly catch this and mm-hmm. to be able to show, you know, okay, this this is not really.
0: They're looking at you and nodding, but they're really not understanding what exactly. Or they're
1: like. saying mm-hmm. something, and it's first of all, it may not make much sense. Mm-hmm. And, but again, from a nonverbal standpoint, it may look like they have every bit of understanding. So mm-hmm. <clears throat> then you have to work with family. You have to work, you know, carefully in terms of how do you want to approach this so that you can communicate what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, if it's very severe that they really aren't understanding doctors, then that's where family is vital to be able to make sure that the person's needs and wishes are respected.
0: You know, farther down my list, you know, before we close the show, out, I was going to ask you what are some exercises that people can do to kind of overcome some of these deficits. But I want to kind of ask this question right here, right now. In a situation like that, how do you strengthen person's brain to be able to kind of come back online better and stronger so that they are understanding what's being asked and what they're saying and things like that I mean how how does that or does that just kind of come back online over time or
1: well it depends you know first of all where you are in the stage of recovery so mm-hmm. if again if this is you know two hours after the stroke has started Mm -hmm. then you know we just need to stabilize the person medically and give them some time and see whether or not it comes back online Mm -hmm. if we're talking a month post-stroke and they're still you know not able to comprehend either what they read what they hear um then again you work with speech and language pathologists to start to you know do some reading and see if they can understand. We we have to you know assess first where they are. Mm-hmm. You know, as a person who had been you know a, a high school graduate, are they now reading at like a first grade level? Mm-hmm. Well, then we get down to that level, and then we start practicing in terms mm-hmm. of the reading, in terms of understanding, and can they explain what they have um, heard or what they're reading? So. <clears throat> as much as you can exercise that part of the brain the better
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. let's talk about the stroke survivor who everything in there works fine They're understanding they get it but once it gets to their lips and is about to leave their mouth (laughs) it gets hung up somehow so they understand they can read they're very clear in their thinking and everything else it's just that The music goes in here and it goes around and around and it comes out there. Um, When it comes out, it doesn't come out clear and flowing. What happened there and what can be done to try to fix that. Right?
1: So people who have right hemispheric strokes might actually have language issues in terms of dysarthria, in terms of the lack of the normal cadence and sort of the emotional aspects of your speech. It can be kind of flat or, or monotone. Um, depending on the location of the, the stroke, you can have mechanical issues. Mm-hmm. So that has nothing to do in terms of necessarily, you know, knowing what you want to say or understanding what people are saying to you, but it's more of sort of a mechanical, can you get the words out Mm -hmm. you know so then can you communicate via other means you know in terms of by typing or Mm -hmm. by writing or you know even sign language if need be Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. those are a little easier to kind of work around so but if you're talking more of a you know left anterior temporal and and frontal strokes where you have what's known as a broca's aphasia where people have a halting non fluent speech they can't get the words out then mm-hmm. you know it might it might be struggles just to say one or two words mm-hmm. that's going to happen not only in terms of speaking but it's going to also happen in terms of writing and such as well Hmm. so again part of it just takes time and a lot of work a lot of effort and i'm sure dr parker can kind of explain what he's gone through in terms of all of the the rehab that you must have Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. know and some may seem kind of academic or Mm -hmm. you know i feel like i'm in sixth grade but (laughs) the you know um I'd rather do one thing a million times than a million things once. Because mm-hmm. the more you do that, the more you repeat, the more your brain is going to strengthen the neurons that are still working or work around the damaged ones. And then it slowly will regain. So,
0: you know, a few weeks ago we had a stroke survivor on who was talking about how their really only deficit following their stroke was that their mood had changed. Um, they didn't suffer any kind of, you know, paralysis or anything like that. Just their mood had changed. They were, you know, not as emotional. They just kind of—I think she had described it as just kind of emotionally flat yeah. in a sense. Mm-hmm. Why do things like that happen following a stroke? And what's that about?
1: <coughs> you know, depression after stroke. Um, I mean,
0: is that a level of depression, or is it just...
1: Well, in her case, that's what's known as apathy. Mm
0: -hmm. Right.
1: Um, You know, depression and apathy can be uh, misunderstood, or people misunderstand apathy as being depression, when it really isn't at all. Mm -hmm. Depression is a sadness, a lack of a, or a loss of a joy for life. So you might feel blue you might feel helpless you might feel hopeless you might feel worthless um it overlaps with apathy in the sense of there's this loss of motivation but with apathy there's not necessarily that sadness component it's mm-hmm. really again the sort of lack of motivation lack of desire
0: mm-hmm.
1: so <clears throat> and believe it or not the apathy issues tend to be associated with more right hemispheric strokes. Your depression tends to be associated with more left. Hmm. Now, the depression can be a consequence, a direct consequence of the stroke itself, depending Mm -hmm. on where it is. You know, again, left versus right Mm -hmm. and subcortical areas. But also, depression is a very frequent consequence of the stroke
0: and why is that because I've heard that so much and that's of all the things that can happen after a stroke that's the one bullet I happen to have dodged for whatever reason but I hear that so much from stroke survivors that all of a sudden they find themselves depressed and not necessarily depressed from what happened you know like man I had a stroke man my arms a little you know not that really it was just like bummed you know why where
1: Well, for some people, it is a a reaction to their loss. Yes, in some cases
0: it was. But there's been others that I've heard who have said it's not that. They just don't know. Even some of them who I've seen at the support groups who really had no. Now, one thing
1: to kind of keep in mind, you know, when it comes to the paralysis, that happens to be associated with atrophy on your motor strip in a cortical area of your brain. Your limbic system, which is sort of an area underneath that top part of your brain, is your emotion center. Mm. Okay. It's more subcortical issues that impact, you know, um, the emotion centers. So the say they got the motors centers. on top? Yeah, you're you've got you know, your brain is obviously has many layers, mm-hmm. so to speak. You know, but on the top there's like a motor strip, there's a sensory strip, you know, so with and y- legs arms that area tends to be directly fed by your middle cerebral artery mm-hmm. which again is a major area where there's risk for strokes if you have hypertension mm-hmm. or cholesterol issues or diabetes so <clears throat> not uncommonly then if you're going to have a, you mm-hmm. know, a stroke those there where, where
0: offline mm-hmm. ex-
1: where are you going to have the weakness mm-hmm. you know you're going to feel it in those extremities mm-hmm. and when it comes to more the the subcortical areas then you can start having impact in terms of emotional functioning when it hits your limbic areas as well. And so um, if that person is continuing to have microvascular ischemic disease progressing, that sort of silent strokes, Mm -hmm. then that's going to raise the risk in terms of development of organic mood disorders. Mm. Not only depression, but also anxiety.
0: Mm -hmm. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting.
2: I detected... A note of anxiety uh, as well. Anxiety? Mm hmm.
0: Mm
1: hmm. And the anxiety may not necessarily be, you know, the fears of, you know, am I going to be able to lift this cup no. right off? It's just sort of a general yeah. free floating kind of mm. angst, you know?
2: That's right.
0: Hmm. Now, you know, as I'd mentioned earlier, in For people that heard the show a couple of weeks ago, you know, Dr. Parker had, uh, you know, kind of a freak out moment, which, you know, if somebody's afraid of dogs, I could totally understand why somebody would be like, hey, you know, don't come strolling up out of the blue with this dog, you know, without kind of making sure everybody's cool with it, you know. But what was really kind of remarkable was that, as he said, he's had four dogs and three cats and had never had a problem with dogs ever until, boom, stroke comes and all of a sudden, oh, I'm afraid of dogs, What's that about? Because I've actually heard, like I said, with the person who said that their mood had changed after a stroke. In this case, Dr. Parker, all of a sudden, is just out of the blue afraid of dogs, even though he's had dogs around him all his life and things Mm -hmm. like that. What would make something like that just kind of happen within the brain just because of the stroke?
1: Well, again, it was the area of the brain that was impacted for you. It seems like you probably had a left middle cerebral artery stroke. You know, and it affected not only that court, you know, top cortical layer there, with the language and with the, the motor functioning, but you also probably had some impact either because of metabolic changes, because of, you know, edema and, you know, just the way that it spread out. It probably also affected the limbic system over there. And so, which is, you know, another area, another layer of your brain, again, the emotional center of your brain. <clears throat> and so you're more sensitive.
0: Hmm.
1: So, but it is treatable, you know. Exposure therapy is one of the best ways to. Mm,
0: that's what happened here, you know. <laughs> the dog came and he worked it through, and everybody's crying in here. It was like this big moment we all had because we were so excited. It was like, you know, watching someone who's been trying to walk all of a sudden take their first steps. It's like, you know, like wow, cool. He broke through. You know, well, wow, you know, we were all excited and everything. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, we usually do it in a graduated fashion. You know, if if you all at once develop a spider phobia, we're not going to stick you in a room with 5,000 spiders. Mm -hmm. That's called Mm -hmm. flooding. And Mm -hmm. I I think it's kind of traumatizing personally. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in terms of the the dog sensitivity, we would typically, some people would put you on medications first. But typically Mm. we would develop coping strategies okay deep breathing one of the best ways to kind of manage the anxiety to get your parasympathetic nervous system kicked in to kind of reduce that that agitation that upset that basically your sympathetic nervous system is kicked in when you're anxious mm-hmm. so we teach you the deep breathing to, to get your parasympathetic nervous system to settle you down and then also to kind of use your thoughts to be able to counteract anything that's going on in your head of this is a danger. It's not a danger. This is a cute, lovely little dog. And so with those kind of strategies in place, then to sort of help you get exposed to dogs. So maybe we might show you pictures first, or maybe we might have you watch videos. Um, yours just happened to be that it, it happened when it happened, and you may not have been aware that you were afraid of dogs before the dog walked in.
2: Bye. My has two dogs. My daughter has two dogs. And I'm afraid
0: of them.
1: Even now still?
0: Yes. Really, even still? Yes. some Because, you know, it was funny. The other day, we just saw him reach over and start petting it. And we were like, whoa, what? Because, you know, I saw him reach over and I'm like, is he, like, going to push the dog away? Or is he, you know, because we, we knew he wasn't going to hit it. But he just started petting the dog. And I'm like, wow. Okay. I, I can take it.
2: Two dogs in my lap but I can't take one dog sitting next to me not sitting in my lap but sitting next to me. Okay, so you've
1: already taken strides, and so mm-hmm. the idea is to look at this as sort of, you know the goal is to be able to be comfortable having the two dogs in your lap. So one step at a time. So mm-hmm. you've got the dog next to you, one dog next to you, just fine. Okay, so you know to keep working on your breathing, keep working on your thoughts, and then you know what? Maybe you have two dogs sitting next to you. You know, and the Mm -hmm. next step step might be just to have, you know, one dog on your lap. And, you know, it's not like you have to do this one, you know, every consecutive day. It may take, you know, a little while to get comfortable with one step before you move on to the next. But it's it's doable. It's treatable. If you want to have your daughter's two dogs on your lap, then you can do it. It just might take a little work.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, right, right, right. So, Dr. Parker had mentioned that the next time the dog was around, maybe he'd see if he wanted to get near it again or whatever, just as a way to kind of work through it.
2: Have you ever done a yoga class? <clears throat> no, I haven't done a yoga class, but I've taken Hagen-Tai-Chi for 16 years. Hmm.
0: Okay,
1: that breathing, uh, the reason, the breathing in yoga is the same deep diaphragmatic breathing, which helps... Kick in your parasympathetic oh, yeah. nervous system and helps calm you down. Right. Hmm. So that same sort of breathing. If you start to start, you know, feel sort of agitated, focus on the breath. Okay, so focus on breathing.
0: Let me let me kind of break in here and introduce what's happening. So our friend from a few episodes ago, a few mm-hmm. weeks ago, Candy is back with her adorable Sherman Oaks. That dog just gets cuter and cuter. I love the bows that you put in her hair. <laughs> and Dr. Parker said that the next time that you were around, he went, "Oh, Dr. Parker, you're walking over there. Oh my gosh, <laughs> Dr. Parker!" <laughs> I mean, this is now back. this, this I is.
2: Know have to go to the bathroom. You have to go to the bathroom now.
0: <laughs> Hopefully not to throw up. No, no, no. So uh, I gotta, I, we got to start putting these shows on video so people know what the heck's going on. So Dr. Parker just got out of his chair, walked so strongly over to Sherman Oaks, the little dog that you guys remember from a few episodes ago, pet her vigorously like, like he had known the dog all his life, and then said he's got to go to the bathroom. So I guess we'll wait till he comes back to find out where this energy came from so Dr. Swain you would have not would not have believed how freaked out dr parker was when candy rolled in here a couple of weeks ago i mean okay. she ju- you know you saw how quietly she rolled in i mean and you know she goes to all the rooms and visits the patients and stuff like that and the door was open and she saw that we were in here so she just strolled in and i had never met candy none of us had until you know a couple of weeks ago and dr parker was sitting right there and candy just kind of rolled up and got about as far as she is right now which is like maybe i don't know seven to ten feet away from where dr parker was sitting and he just like turned sideways and just really started freaking out. And which I don't blame him for if he was, you know, if anybody's afraid of dogs, certainly, you know, it's certainly within your right to say, Hey, excuse me, but you know, you're getting a little close to me and that's what you should do. But it was when he revealed that he had never been afraid of dogs before until his stroke that the whole room took on a different thing because we were like because i was ready to say hey, you know ma'am could you please take your dog away and i was still kind of like hey however you guys want to work it out you, you know we you don't have to do anything with the dog but you could see that he really kind of wanted to get beyond it and with candy being certainly well versed in being able to work with people you know in this animal therapeutic type of situation i mean it played itself out the way it should have, which was obviously as you could tell, because he just got right up and pet the dog like nothing now, which <laughs> we're all still like, wow, yeah. you know, yeah. because Dave, you remember that. Yeah. That was amazing. So when he comes back, I just want to hear, I guess my question will be to him when he comes back, which is, and I asked him this before, what was it that just kind of gave you that final little push to say, you know what, I'm just going to get over this, you know, this is silly. Because that's kind of how he was last week or a couple weeks ago when he did it. He just totally just was like, okay, and just started petting the dog. So I guess I would say to you, Dr. Swain, why would there be such a dichotomy in behaviors so quickly? Is it just somebody just decides they're just going to pull up their bootstraps (coughs) and just do it? Could have been. Yeah.
1: You know, I mean, one really... Effective form of therapy is cognitive behavioral therapy, Mm -hmm. and we teach people how to change their thoughts so Mm -hmm. that it changes their behavior and how they feel. Mm -hmm. You know, so to the extent of okay, I can do this. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: This is not threatening.
0: Yeah, you know, because I was fine with him being afraid. I really was, and even now he's back in the room and pet doctor, and he made me cry like a baby when he did it. You know, just because I'm just so proud of you, man. Because I saw the fear in you that day, and I was more than fine with. Like, hey, you know, ma'am, you know, thanks for coming with the dog, but can you please, you know, I was fine with all that. However, you needed it to be for you, I was fine with it. now I think, think the fear is mostly gone. <laughs> yeah, I would say, I would say, and that's awesome. But how did you make it? What is it that you did to make it go away? I don't. Huh? I. Like, what did you think in your mind? Was it like, you know what? I need to just get over this, or this yeah. is silly, or...
2: Uh, yes, I, uh, I decided I needed to get
0: over there and do it. Pet the dog. Mm-hmm. We're going to... Hang on, Dr. Parker, hand because there's something else I want to talk about that is really very important, mm-hmm. very, very important when it comes to you. This is a support group. I'll edit this out if you want, so it's, uh, this doesn't need to be on the show. Last week, Dr. Parker... And this is going to make me cry, no, cause I'm a really emotional guy. I, I don't have uh, a <laughs> pseudobulpower apex, apex. I've always been this way. Last week, he ex- made a, a comment that he doesn't like to call people. He likes to text them. But he doesn't like texting because it takes too long to text, and it's very long. And he went on to reveal that the reason he likes to text people is because he's self-conscious about his speaking. And I made the comment, well, look, man, I don't care who's on your phone, whoever you're calling, if they're going to be like, oh, man, this is Bob, you don't need to be calling them anyway. Because these are people who love and care about you. And if they're going to be all like, oh, man, here's Bob. It's going to take him 20 minutes to get to the end of the sentence or whatever. That's, don't call them anymore. I don't care who it is, you know. Because there's nobody nobody you need to be calling that would feel that way. But my point is, is I as I said, I think that's more about you thinking mm-hmm. that so my comment was was, "I think that's more you being self-conscious about what your loved ones no. and friends might think yes. about, no. because I told you you could take, I told you, I got enough tape here, you can take 20 minutes to say whatever you want to say. I don't care. Because as I told you, you're a brilliant man, you're awesome, you're cool, and I got all day to hear what you got to say, because it's going to be something that's going to be cool and pertinent and important. And I just don't want you to have that kind of self-consciousness. You know, because I think the people that truly know and love you and care about you, man, we're not thinking about that. We're really not. I'm not. And I don't think anybody else is, you know. I mean we get it. We know what, what time it is. Hey, I can't I can't run. So don't ask me to run. So I can't ask you I can't ask you to recite poetry like that. I mean this is just where we are. Like I said, this is where we are now and we need to get over it, I guess is what I think about myself. But doctor, could you talk maybe about a little bit about Help him with his self-consciousness just a little bit. Or just comment on it. I'm not saying help him. Just comment on it. I mean, make because I don't want to be giving him wrong information No, either.
1: you didn't give him wrong information. I thought you gave him great advice. You know, sometimes we project our own insecurities onto other people. You know, oh, they don't like me, when really it's that we are afraid they won't like us. And so mm-hmm. we just kind of jump to that conclusion. But the point is, is that it's understandable, it's reasonable that you would be insecure or a little hesitant to talk in front of other people oh they're gonna think something's wrong with me they're you know they're gonna be impatient they're not gonna want to hear from me your friends aren't your friends because you speak eloquently or because you're an established Mm -hmm. poet they're your friends because they love you and they Mm -hmm. want to hear from you you know that's the Uh truth you know and you're not their friends because they speak eloquently Mm -hmm. or not you know they're your friends because you love them
0: and we get it you know your friends know you had a stroke and they're still here they're still there we're all still you know
1: they're just grateful you're still here
0: yes yes Dr. Swain made a very good point though when she said people are not your friends because you speak eloquently they're your friends because they love you and I don't think any truer words could have been spoken I think that's like a mic drop right there I mean that was that was it You heard from the doctor. (laughs) Doctor to doctor. (laughs) Um, One of the the stroke survivors who wasn't able to come today uh, because they have a cold sent in a question. And it is, what are the symptoms of cognitive decline? And how do they vary based on aging versus illness, Uh, i.e. stroke, Parkinson's, and things like that? (coughs)
1: Cognitive decline is a very general term. Because you know, cognition is a very broad based term in and of itself. So, as we all get older, you know, our brain does change. Let's just be honest, Mm -hmm. I don't remember quite as well as I did when I was 20, is what it is. Mm -hmm. So, um, there's just sort of a normal change as we get older, and for a lot of us, again, part of it is that maybe not think as quickly on our feet as we used to or we may not be able to hyper focus as well as we used to we may not be able to remember quite as well as we used to this a lot of this is just normal
0: Mm -hmm.
1: okay when pathology sets in such as alzheimer's disease or stroke Mm -hmm. then you know depending on the pathology the rate of decline can be much more exaggerated and that's one thing that that Mm -hmm. i'm often called in to look on of you know is this normal aging is this depression is this a degenerative disease Hmm. you know so i look at patterns in terms of people's cognitive performances across a wide range of abilities Mm -hmm. and i compare them to other people of their age their education level where and and i also look at where I would expect them to be in a perfect world, mm. because some people start off really strong, some people, a lot of us start pretty average, mm. you know, so um, the thing about really smart people Dr. is that Parker, sometimes,
3: <laughs>
1: you know, sometimes you might have small strokes and, you know, you come in going. Something's wrong. I don't feel so good. The doctor, you know, might say, Well, you know, count backwards from 100 for me by sevens, and they do, you do it okay. Oh, you're fine. Mm,
0: But but you know, he's brilliant. He could do that (laughs) because he's
1: brilliant. His brain Mm -hmm. is able to compensate, or because Mm. you know, the stuff is made for an average level person. Mm -hmm. People with superior intellect to begin with or more cognitive reserve, they can kind of escape detection. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So you know, so that's one thing to kind of keep in mind for for the people who are listening, you know. Do they notice that things are a little off, mm-hmm. you know? And, and, you know, are the doctors saying, oh, you're just getting older, it's fine. Well, it may just be that you're getting older, mm-hmm. but it may be something else. And again, you know, TIAs are kind of a big warning sign, so... Yeah those kinds of things that I feel a little off just might mean, you know, maybe you better go and get this checked out because we do want to avoid having something much more major happen. Mm -hmm.
0: Boy, I'm glad you mentioned that too because I'm going to do a whole show on TIAs because I actually had one 10 days or so before I had my stroke. And I I didn't even know what it was. I I, I thought I was, you know, I was wondering why my speech was slurring a little bit and I felt dizzy all of a sudden. And then as quickly as I felt it, Five minutes later, it went away, and I felt great for the next 10 days. Never thought anything of it. I I thought maybe my blood pressure just gotten a little high for whatever reason, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, I'm going to do a whole rant on that, so I'm glad you brought that up. Is cognitive difficulties kind of a precursor or kind of a little flag that goes up the pole in terms of what could be on the horizon, i.e. a TIA or a stroke?
1: It could be a symptom of those. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, we all have our good days and bad days, and Lord knows if we hadn't had a good night's sleep, we we may not be thinking as clearly Mm -hmm. as we would like. Mm -hmm. You know, if we're under a lot of stress or if we have a lot of anxiety or depression going on, those can all impact how well our brains function on any given day. Mm -hmm. But if those things aren't really present and something seems to be off, it most certainly can be an indicator of something's changing i need to go get this checked out Mm -hmm. you know and even if it's nothing at least you've got it checked out
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know we're going to take another break and when we come back dr swain's going to give us all some exercises that um we can do especially if uh any of you listeners out there are having any kind of cognitive difficulties or if you're a caregiver uh, caring for someone Mm -hmm. that has some cognitive difficulties so hang tight and we'll be right back Hey, this is Christopher Ewing with a Life After Stroke health tip. Now, you always hear people ask the question, how did we ever live without cell phones? Well, today, our cell phones can actually help us live. Whether your cell phone is an iPhone or an Android phone, if you have a previous medical condition, and especially if you're a stroke survivor, then you absolutely want to have a medical ID on your cell phone. Now, a medical ID is a special link that sits right on the home screen of your cell phone where someone like an ambulance driver or a doctor or any first responder to any medical emergency that you may be having can find the important medical information that you want someone to know if you're not able to tell them yourself, maybe because you've lost consciousness or you're having another stroke or maybe you're just unable to speak or remember the information for whatever reason. All someone needs to do if you're having an emergency is click on the medical ID link on your phone and there they can see all the important information that you've listed there like your name any prior medical condition that you may have any medications that you may be taking as well as the phone number of the person who should be notified if you're having a medical emergency now on most phones the medical id app is already on your phone and ready to be set up And if you don't see a medical ID app currently on your phone, then all you have to do is go to Google Play or the iPhone App Store and download any medical ID app that you choose. And best of all, most of the medical ID apps you can choose from are free. So having a medical ID link on your phone is super important to have. And what's even cooler is, in an emergency, the first responder can even access your medical ID info, even if your cell phone is locked and requires a password to open it. If you need more information on where to find a medical ID app and learn how to activate it on your phone, or if you have a really cool health tip that you'd like to share with others, just go to our website, www.thestrokechannel.tv. I'm Christopher Ewing, and this has been a Life After Stroke Health Tip. Hey everybody welcome back to life after stroke i'm christopher ewing today we are talking with dr annette swain she is a clinical neuropsychologist here in the burbank in encino area here in california and uh i know one of our stroke survivors asked are you taking on new patients yes okay all right her we'll make sure we have your information on our website and dr parker had something he wanted to say
2: i had three tia's and i hadn't remembered them uh, not, uh, not,
0: uh, not one. So you had three TIAs before your stroke. Yes. And how far apart were they?
2: I don't know. I, I wrote a poem about that. I'm
0: sure you probably did. No, <laughs> it says in the, writer. In the yeah.
2: random really
0: Random musings book. Okay, but now let me ask you so the TIAs, you don't remember how far apart each TIA was. How soon was the last TIA? Uh, say, uh, the
2: I had three
0: TIAs mm-hmm. within a month. Okay, and then how much sooner after the last TIA was your strokes? were your strokes
2: maybe two
0: weeks mm-hmm. after the third TIA mm-hmm. I had the stroke and did you look into any of those previous three you're shaking your head no so you, you those TIAs came just came and went and you were like oh
1: were you even I'm a- not
0: beating up on you because I avoided mine, too, so I'm the last yes. person to point a finger. <laughs> but
1: were you even aware that you, it was like a quote-unquote TIA? Yes,
2: uh, the third TIA I was aware of. Um, I was in the bathroom, and I had my uh, third TIA, and my face drooped. Hmm. Hmm. And uh, all less than six, five or six hours, it re- uh, it went up.
0: Hmm. Well, now that's why I'm going to do a show on TIAs, everybody, because we can't be having these warning signs and just letting them go. Now, you had three of them. If I had had three, I'd probably, by the second or third one, I'd have been like, okay, wait a minute. But I'm not going to come down on Dr. Parker. But, you know, if... You guys, if you guys, if you're having TIAs, look into that stuff. Let me tell you, because I know I'm living proof to look into a TIA, and Dr. Parker obviously is too. So, Doc, what do you got to say about that now?
1: You know, my approach is always let's, you know, not only focus on recovery after stroke, but let's look at what Mm -hmm. we can do to prevent. Mm -hmm. What are, you know, there are some factors that are genetic. Mm-hmm. You know, we might have a family history of high cholesterol, or we might have a, you know, family history of the way that our, our brains are organized that make you more susceptible mm-hmm. for developing, you know, thrombosis mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. embolisms. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of lifestyle factors,
3: mm-hmm.
1: you know, and that includes, you know, your diet and your exercise. Mm-hmm. And, you know, smoking is a big risk factor. If mm-hmm. you drink too much, certain drugs... Mm -hmm. They all raise your risk. And so not only in terms of targeted exercise would help a recovery, but modifying those risk factors. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And exercise, I can't harp on enough in terms of of helping not only to recover after a stroke, Mm -hmm. but also to prevent any further vascular insults. Mm
0: -hmm. Which brings us, this is a very nice segue into my next question, and I can't wait to get into this exercises um let's talk about the stroke survivor who who knows how far out they are from their stroke and not that it even matters well maybe it does matter let's say there's a stroke survivor who's within a year out of their stroke and you know they're getting stronger but just cognitively they're just not right back to the person that they were maybe they're still kind of quiet you know they're not talking as much maybe they're almost maybe not talking at all what are some exercises that they can do or their caregiver can help them do to try to strengthen themselves cognitively
1: it's a good question and, and again it's a broad-based one which mm-hmm. is, can be difficult to answer because strokes impact people in different ways depending mm-hmm. on the location but if you're talking about somebody who's quiet You know, first, again, we got to look at is it why did they develop a depression or anxiety and they're shy versus do they have a language issue? And so are they having problems with speaking? Well, then the best thing to do is to work with that caregiver in terms of of talking as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, maybe they're having problems in terms of spontaneously coming up with speech. They just might not think of ideas. But if you ask them questions, they can answer just fine. You know
0: Like I remember Going to one of the Support groups And seeing a stroke survivor Who was in Were they in a wheelchair I think they were In a wheelchair At the time Although I think That they were A little farther out From their stroke It wasn't Like immediate Like just in the past few weeks It may have been Like a few months uh, Before I saw them But at any rate They were just Kind of in the chair Kind of withdrawn They would look And they could hear And they could understand What's being mm-hmm. said to them But they weren't Communicating They just weren't speaking back at all um what can their caregiver do to try to get them uh, because i'm sure they probably talked before i mean i can't say that for sure because i don't know the person but i can only assume that they did because they had a family and kids and things like that so my point is is what can someone do for a stroke survivor who's in that kind of situation who's at that level of their recovery to try to get them to be talkative again and communicative and just not more alert but just back you know
1: you know for some individuals what really helps is to find out what their hobbies were beforehand Mm -hmm. you know and as long as the motor symptoms aren't interfering and they can still do those things to kind of harness what were their passions and Mm -hmm. to get them to start doing some of those again Mm -hmm. and for some of them you know then the language will come with it they'll, they'll start talking about mm-hmm. it or you bring up things about their interest so if somebody mm-hmm. had been a you know an avid football player hey let's watch whoever mm-hmm. you know and get them to you know get and a ask, rise out
0: of them or something well right or even to you know
1: bring it up on the television hey you know guess mm-hmm. who's on let's watch you know mm-hmm it requires somebody with someone who's that passive that your example is Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's going to require an active caregiver Mm -hmm. it's kind of easy if we get burnt out to sort of you know the person's fine in the chair we'll just lead them there they're not causing trouble but mm-hmm. that unfortunately we don't want them to fall yes. through the cracks so having somebody who's enthusiastic hey let's go you know walk mm-hmm. around the mall today or you know there's a new movie let's go do this you know the more that we can keep them engaged mm-hmm. and after strokes and after other brain injuries they might need some help no i don't want to do it or mm-hmm. they you know no any sort of excuse we can't take that as we can't take excuses We have to push them.
0: Yes, and you know, I want to go here with this. I'm glad you brought that up because there's another person who I recall being at some of the support groups that I've attended. Lovely woman, and I guess she was really brilliant in her line of work. I can't remember what they said that she did, but I mean, it was like one of the other survivors there who has known her for many years, I don't know how, but, but he wasn't a caregiver. He just, maybe he just heard about this woman and knew about her, but at any rate, she was like off the charts really high functioning pre-stroke but now she has like a couple of nurses or caregivers that would bring her to the support groups and she sits in the chair and she's just real quiet John's nodding his head because you you know who I'm talking about and um, and and no knock to anybody like you know her caregivers or anything I mean the woman sits there. She's great. She's quiet. She, you know, when she looks at me and when I see her, I'm always happy. to say, Hey, how you doing? She gives a little smile back. So she's really aware. And her caregivers seem like very nice people. You know, they just make sure she's comfortable. But and I, this isn't me being critical. And I, But I guess I'm saying it just seems like can you do something more? Not necessarily to really change her in any way or anything. I mean, if she's comfortable, she's comfortable. It, it's just something that you said a few minutes ago where it's like, You know, well, as long as they're in the chair and they're comfortable, okay. You know, like that's what some caregivers do. They just make sure that everything's just chilled. They're sitting up straight. Everybody's comfortable. Okay, great. I'm going to go sit down over here and watch TV or read a book. It just seems like if this is where this person is, whoever it is, whether it's the person I'm talking about or anyone else, if they're just kind of sitting in the chair and everything's comfortable, they don't need to go to the restroom, they're not hungry, everything's fine, it just seems like there should still be some more. Interaction going on and and interactivity happening to just keep their brain stimulated.
1: That's so important, you know, not only after stroke, but For all of us as we get older, Mm -hmm. you know, what I say to some people is retirement is the worst thing anybody could ever Mm. do for their brain.
0: Yes, right.
1: Stimulation is vital to keep your brain healthy. And so, you know, that woman that you bring up, at least she's getting the social stimulation. She's being around others. Mm -hmm. She's listening. She's getting that kind of stimulation. So Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that it's all lost. You know, obviously there can be a potential for more if we can get her engaged more. Some of it might just take time. -hmm. You know, maybe she just needs to get comfortable. Mm -hmm. But, you know, again, the stimulation, so mentally active. So, whatever she was in terms of her brilliance, you know, I would have her in more of those support groups Mm -hmm. or to get her, if she was as brilliant as you say, maybe get her to some lectures that she Mm -hmm. can listen to, Mm -hmm. you know. And so maybe initially it's just her listening, but at least then she's out there, you Mm -hmm. know. Um, the support groups are great because after a while, you know, you see the same people over and over, mm-hmm. then you get comfortable. So maybe the first time I see you, maybe I'm not going to say a single word. Maybe the 10th time I see you, I don't want to say a word, but you know what? Maybe after the 15th, I might just say Heidi.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Sure. I know what you mean. Yeah. 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 And it it just seems like <clears throat> not even just her, but just in general, I know we have a lot of caregivers that are listening and things like that who are, I'm sure great caregivers. So this isn't an act to caregivers. It just seems like it, it should not be considered enough to know that the person isn't hungry. They've, they don't need to go to the restroom. They're sitting up right in their chair. Everything's fine and they're quiet. It just seems like there's things that, you know, whether you put a game in front of them to play with or a book or, I don't know, tell them a story, anything, it just seems like we should continue to keep the brain working and, and things going in it. And not just settle for the fact that they look like they're comfortable and not in pain.
1: Exactly. And the last thing you want to do is just park them in front of a TV all day. Yes. Right. You know. That's what I
0: mean. Yes. Because your brain will just go to jail. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm a television producer, and <laughs> trust me, I, I look at some stuff on TV. It's like, how did they get a budget for that show? Who in the world <laughs> Are they even watching that show? But yeah, right, exactly. And, and so this is another thing, and this is something that we're putting together through the Stroke Channel TV. Are workbooks and things like that that caregivers can kind of work from, and stroke survivors can work from, that will kind of give people tips and ideas and exercises to do. What would be some exercises that a caregiver could do with their loved one, as they're at home sitting in their favorite chair or at the table or whatever, what are some things that they could do to keep that stimulation <clears throat> going? Are puzzles and toys good or, you know, I mean, that would be so remedial. I mean, it seems like
1: don't don't dismiss it Just because it seems remedial mm-hmm. You know My attitude has always been Harness what the person's interests are mm-hmm. You know So like You know Exercise is very important But if you were never one To want to You know Go out and run Then I'm not going to tell you Go through a marathon You mm-hmm. know If you were more likely To be amenable to Swimming or or biking then you know what harness what your interests are because then you're more likely to keep doing it the more likely you're going to develop a passion the more likely it's going to be helpful if I tell you to do something if I tell you to do puzzles and you hate puzzles for the life of you it's not going to go anywhere because it's not going to be enjoyable mm-hmm. so you know, mm-hmm. so if a person loved art or loved painting, then you know what? Let's go to the museums today. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, Burbank Adult School's got a lovely art program yeah, for the great adults. Stuff. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So look at what, you know, understand who the person is that you're working with because we're all individuals and it's really an individualized approach for for recovery after stroke. You know, I can give you nice little general tips of, you know, Eat your Mediterranean food diet and don't <laughs> drink any alcohol and throw out any cigarettes that you have. And yeah, yeah right. those are all important. Mm-hmm. But for you, your recovery, in terms of what works for you, it's like, okay, where were the areas that you struggled with? If it was more language, okay, then let's get you, you know, figure out where your reading level is and let's do some reading. If you hate reading, let's get you some books on tape. Mm -hmm. Let's get you writing some poetry. You know, if it's for somebody who had more of a, Right hemispheric stroke, and now they're having a difficulty with regard to puzzles. You know, maybe we start working in terms of artwork. oh
0: ah, John's got a book there. What's that book about, John? No,
3: nothing. It's fluff. But it's so keep grab the mic lot. there. Good. I read a lot. Good. And I read in my um, bed at. Um, uh, bed in my, um, college, no, um, um, maternity ward, no, maternity <laughs> ward. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but I read and read and read, but, um, speaking was not, not good for me, but, um, uh, ri- writing was good but um following
0: your stroke reading was always good. yes
3: that mm-hmm. was good but uh verbal is not but i'm speaking more now mm-hmm.
1: and the more that you do the better you're gonna get
3: yeah, yeah. you know mm-hmm. so
1: keep coming to these groups and keep talking with the others and you know you'd probably be a great spokesperson with yeah. regard to you know there is yeah, life after invented. stroke.
0: Sure, exactly. You yeah. know? John, have you noticed that the reading has helped your speech at all, do you think?
3: Yes, mm. it, it does. But um, um, I read to my kids. I was going to say. And uh, mm-hmm. it's better and better for me to well, that do That was it.
1: the next thing I was going to say is, mm-hmm. you know, what about reading out loud? I was just
3: about to yeah. say that, doctor. Yes. Yes. Would
0: that help?
1: Yes. Oh,
0: yes. 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 Huh. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Boy, John, that's good. Yeah, do that, huh? You got the kids for it, too, you know? You got kids to read to. See, someone like me, I'd have to read either to my mom or just talk, I was, talk. They'd be like, yep, see? The stroke made it go crazy, see? So, yeah, so at least you got people to read to. Yeah, that yeah. would be cool, huh? Yep. Wow, that would be great. Really great you can
1: even join you know like current events groups or you know some of the local community colleges you can sign up for different classes um where you can talk about politics or whatever you know anything that will get you engaged mm-hmm. so you know that's one thing to sort of read that's great but also i want you to even harness it to the next level of kind of thinking about what you want to say because and with reading you're not really you're kind of reading the words but you don't necessarily have to put a lot of thought into what you are actually reading and you might not even remember what you read when you're done doing it but if you would maybe challenge yourself in terms of okay I'm going to read this article and I'm going to talk to my wife about what I read so it's more spontaneous more having to summarize more having to put it together
0: Mm. very cool you know, Doctor, I wanted to ask you, are there exercises that should be more specific for older stroke survivors? You know, maybe there's some that are in their 70s and 80s. Maybe they've kind of, you know, hit their, I don't know, call it a plateau, but maybe they just haven't progressed um, a whole lot more over the years and, and they're just kind of chilled out and quiet and things like that. As they get older now, you don't want them to just kind of grow old and just kind of just kind of sit there in the chair like you said and we'll just face them towards the television and just keep them chilled out are there any exercises that you should do with some of the older survivors exercises that are more <clears throat> tailored for older
1: for older individuals mm-hmm. lifestyle is a big one you know sometimes how you die is a reflection of how you lived
0: right so mm-hmm.
1: you know and again with regards to we we've talked about this you know what do you want to harp on it um, it's just so vital in order to keep yourself as active as possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I know that we're more easily fatigued as we get older or I know our stamina gets older. But you know what? So maybe today you can only walk to the end of your street and, mm-hmm. or maybe even just to your mailbox. But mm-hmm. you know what? You keep pushing yourself. You have to make, you keep making goals. You keep putting a purpose in your life. Whatever that might be. Is it, I'm going to, you know, come to my grandkids uh, every baseball game so mm-hmm. I'm going to be there and I'm going to be the best fan and root and not make bad calls
3: <laughs> and you
1: know and again I'm going to get myself in as best a physical shape as possible I'm going to keep my brain young you mm-hmm. know so for some people it's going to be be reading for other people it's going to be you know doing crossword puzzles or doing jigsaw puzzles or painting or you know Trying to do some new programming on the computer, you know, something that they're interested in, something that gives them purpose and meaning mm-hmm. and passion. Mm-hmm. Because the more that you stay engaged, the younger that you stay.
0: So, doctor, final thoughts.
1: Final thoughts. You know, strokes don't have to be death sentences,
2: mm-hmm.
1: okay? We are learning more and more each day about how our brain is able to compensate. Is able to regenerate.
0: Mm -hmm. You
1: know, life doesn't have to be over. And I'm not diminishing the struggles that some people have to go through on that path to recovery or on that journey, because it really is a journey. Mm -hmm. You know, Um, don't be afraid to ask for help. If you have, if you start having symptoms of a TIA, Mm -hmm. don't blow them off. Oh, you know, I just, you know had too many to drink last night who don't
0: Mm -hmm. be Mm -hmm.
1: be an advocate for yourself there
0: you go Mm -hmm.
1: be sure to you know and maybe it was nothing and that's okay because at least you had it checked out right but you know you know yourself best so you know A take care of yourself beforehand because we want to all have you know the best quality of life possible Mm Mm-hmm. But if something like this happens, then, you know, you be your best advocate. Right. And you do, and make it a commitment to yourself to do whatever it takes. Be it that you, re- you know, talk to your kids every day or read them books and mm-hmm. take them to their Weeblows meetings or writing, you know, books to kind of explain your journey, which will help other people in terms mm-hmm. of inspiration, you know, and being there for other people. It may, you know, even if you're, kind of quiet that doesn't mean that you're not ma- making an impact because you know what you show that you're that others aren't alone that you're there with them
0: right so right. Well, doctor, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really cannot thank you enough. This has just been so informative, really. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. We've been speaking with Dr. Annette Swain. She is a clinical neuropsychologist located here in the Burbank, California area, as well as Encino. And you are taking on new clients. And so um, we will definitely put her information on the uh, strokechannel.tv website. Do people have to physically be able to come to your office, or do you do you, do you meet with patients over the phone, or Skype, and things like that, or do you have, how does that work?
1: You know, it really depends on what their needs are. Okay. So, you know, if they just need a couple of quick questions, I'm happy to answer them okay. over the
0: phone. Gotcha. I mean, we have listeners from all over the world who, you know, may want to, you know, become a patient of yours, but because they live in Germany or something like that, obviously they can't just kind of jump in a car and drive on over. So. Um, you know, So I don't know if you take clients who are out of state or things like that.
1: I haven't done it. You know, there are certain legal aspects in terms of insurance coverage if they're gotcha. not in the state where you're licensed. Gotcha, gotcha. But again, I that see. doesn't mean that I, you know, can't talk to them.
0: Sure, sure. Gotcha. Okay so anyway her information will be on the website you guys can check it out and if you've got questions for her, you can call her and then if she can help you she'll help you if she says i can't help you maybe she'll be able to refer you to someone that can so there you go thank you so much again for being on the show and everybody thank you so much for listening and as always remember that there is still a beautiful life after stroke This has been a recorded program of an actual stroke support group. The comments expressed are the opinions of the participants and not necessarily the opinions of the producers, sponsors, or the broadcasters of this show. This program is not to be used as a way to diagnose or treat any medical condition that you may have. Please consult your doctor or healthcare professional before making any changes to your current medical routine. Life After Stroke is a production of the Hang On to the Dream Foundation, the 501c3 nonprofit organization that helps kids and adults reach their goals in life. If these Life After Stroke programs are helpful to you, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to the Hang On to the Dream Foundation to assist the organization in its numerous outreach activities. For more information, just go to www.hangontothedream.org. And remember, no matter how hard things seem, hang on to the dream.